You're tuned in to the NWSL Rewinds, presented by Modern Soccer Coach. That's what you call USA razzle-dazzle. Now your host, Clifton Bush. And welcome back to the NWSL Rewind. We have been on international breaks and all kinds of breaks going on, but we are here. We are here back with a massive episode today. Uh, lots, lots to cover. Uh, we have, stay tuned for the interview later on today as well. Uh, David Goff, who's a former assistant at FC Casey. Uh, under Vladko Andonovsky, as well as former English national team assistant coach, uh, winners of the bronze medal in the last Olympics, has a great conversation with us about the league and coaching in the league and where coaches coaching needs to go in the league, all that kind of stuff. So make sure to stay tuned for that. But we are back with Sierra and a playoff preview, a season review, and a few uh, thoughts on who were the best of the best in the league this year. So how's it going, Sierra? It's good. It's been it's a long break. Sierra's already thrown down the gauntlet on the best of the best picks. Um, <laughs> so we will see how that goes as the uh, as the conversation uh, continues. So, but first, we'll start off with kind of a season review, and I'll give Sierra the first opportunity here to kind of uh, brag about her picks um, as the playoff picture has unfolded itself. Uh, with North Carolina obviously securing their berth in first uh, yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, Portland actually comes up to second in a 3-1 victory over Seattle yeah. in the final Cascadia battle, albeit that game without Ali Long, without Megan Rapino for Seattle. So I think uh, some things maybe left on the table for the rain in that match. But it does give Portland home field advantage for the semifinal. So that will be played at Providence Park to what I would imagine is a sellout 21-plus thousand crowd. Um, so they take second, Seattle in third, and then Chicago Red Stars in fourth, as was probably expected over the last number of weeks here. Uh, yeah. Just maybe a little too long, uh, too late for Utah, uh, yeah. as well as Houston. So that's our playoff picture, North Carolina versus Chicago on Sunday, supposedly, depending on weather and whatever is going on with Hurricane Florence, we are like real life happening right now. So yeah. we'll see what that, how that pans out. And then Saturday is the Cascadia playoff grudge match, I guess, uh, yeah. fourth time this year. And so we'll see how that goes out in Providence Park. But yeah, that's where we, where we sit with the playoffs. Give us uh, kind of your thoughts on how the season played out, Sierra. Um, I think, you know, for the most part, um, if we were to go back in our, you know, timeline of all of our shows, I think we pretty much nailed how the playoff picture would look. Um, I think Chicago was always one that we kind of talked about that they had to get the results in order to move forward. And they did just that. So I think, you know, it's kind of a catch 22. I think part of it is, is they did what they needed to do, but I think also some teams fell short in a couple different spots. And so it, kind of helped them out as well. Um, but I think Chicago really hit their stride in the end of season. I think even though they lost that game to Utah, I don't think that reflects how the rest of like that second half of season really finished for them. So I think they finished strong. I mean, I think for the most part, the teams that made it, they all did finish strong. I mean, I think you've got, you know, a couple fluke scores here and there, but I think for the most part, all four teams finished on a high note and, 
are, I think if you were to look at the big picture right now, are the best four teams in the league. And I think for the most part, they deserve to go to the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I think if this league does anything, is it actually corrects itself, right? Like, yeah. so the, there's, I don't think you're going to find in this particular league with only nine teams and just how how much parity there is any yeah. point in time where the, where you're going to be able to just kind of squeak your way through without mm-hmm. getting results. And so the certain reality to it is like Utah, the only you know, they beat two teams that made the playoffs. So of the, what, 36, 12 games that they played against playoff teams, they only won two of those games. And one yep. of them was Chicago at the very end. And so, yep. I mean, that's going to be hard to do when you, you know, hard to make the playoffs when you're not beating playoff teams. Like we've said before, Houston is a late resurgence, insurgence, however right. you want to call it, um, right. you know, coming on strong, but certainly struggled first half of the season way too much to expect to be exactly. you know in the kind of uh playoff hunt orlando obviously the big surprise i would say oh my goodness like the fact that orlando wasn't <laughs> able to put together a string of performances and tom sermani has been on on line on twitter on anybody who will listen talking about how much you know how well they were doing with six games to go and how it just kind of unraveled from there. But I think you see sparks of the, the lack of like performances well before those six games. And so it was one of those, I I don't, yes, that the six games at the end of the season is definitely what hurt them. Um, But I mean, a two, one loss to Houston back in June, isn't exactly, you know, like that's a a whole different, a whole different setup. And so those are the games that I think you have to look at and kind of see, well, wait a second, you know, what was was the writing on the wall, you know? I mean, their second match of the year, they lost to Washington Spirit 2-0. Yeah. And that's that's a team, you know, Washington ultimately then, what, won two more games yeah. <laughs> after, after that. So you're – or one more game, excuse me. So Washington won one other game besides for that one. So you're – yeah, Orlando was obviously the big uh, the big drop this year, uh, from having just almost made the playoffs last year to seventh. Yeah, so. Right. Well, and they were far off too. I mean, they had they finished with thirty points, and Chicago had thirty seven in fourth place. I mean, so yeah. you're seven points away from the fourth place team to get into the playoffs, and. But I think it's a shock. I think you look at people look at Orlando's firepower. They look at their attacking front, you know, five, six, whatever you want to say, and they just couldn't get it done. I mean, you know, your last game, you drop it to, you give New Jersey their first win. I mean, and then it's nothing against New Jersey, but everybody knows. I mean, New Jersey's one seventeen and six this year, so you give. You know, Orlando is a team that you if you were to write down on paper and put down their front five or front whatever and say, okay, these ones are going against a team that hasn't won a game, you would be like, oh, they got it in the bag, no worries, they get this win, boom, bada bang, done. And it's like not even close. I mean, they just didn't play well and they lose the game. And I think, you know, they really dropped drastically. And I think you talked about it last time we had talked about the playoff picture of being, that would be the concern is Orlando is the concern. Cause when we had last talked about it, I think they were 
I think they were third or something like that. And it's yeah. like, yeah. they literally, you know, you had mentioned like it, it, that's, they are the concern. They could be the ones that drop drastically out of this race. And I think you have, I think the teams that made it have a consistency. North Carolina obviously has a consistency. They've won, you know, a lot of games. They had Portland, who's pretty consistent. You know what they're going to bring every time they come onto the pitch. Um, they'll change things here and there, but they've got a level of play that you know they're going to bring. Um, Seattle's the same way. I think, you know, you have an, a, in general, I mean, obviously there's flute games here and there, but they have a consistency yeah. that they bring. Um, and then as well as Chicago, like Chicago, you know, we, we talked about how it was a little bit inconsistent in the beginning. I think they make a few trades and adjustments and it's been consistent ever since. And so I think Orlando misses that consistency of, having you know a stability of just keeping the same lineup keeping it at the same level keeping it i mean it just was so up and down all the time the the thing that comes to mind is the difference between having your system and formation and like a style of play yeah north carolina has a style of play yep. portland has a style of play they changed yep. the formation one time uh, yep. and then kept it basically the entire rest of the season. So they found what was going to work in their the formation that works in their style and then rode that to second place. Seattle and Flatco and Denossi clearly have a style of play, kept their same formation basically the entire year. Chicago yep. is the same thing. They They have a style of play. They actually changed their formation and their style a bit but then basically went, I mean, Rory Dames went back to what he's done for the past three years, Yep. you know, like six games, seven games in, right? So uh -huh. you, you get Morgan Bryan and, you, you know, your pieces come back healthy, Casey Short, and you go back to what they've done for the past three years. So clearly yep. he has a style that he knows will work in this environment. And so, and they stuck to that all through, you know, through the rest of the year. So yep. Orlando was one of the only teams besides for Washington that was changing style, formation, personnel. <laughs> they were changing yeah. everything with, you know, with 10 games in, you know, with 15 games in, yeah. eight games to go. Like it was like everything was in flux. And the only other team that was really doing that was kind of like Washington. Right. You know, I mean, Sky Blue was doing that to some, like you could tell there was maybe a lack of a style in sky blue for a bit. Um, Houston found theirs. And that's why I would only say like, it was a little, you know, for Houston, if they had found the Ohio connection, just that really super direct, you know, let right. people come in and then bang it and let her run. You know, if they'd have found that maybe a little earlier, maybe there's a different conversation here for her Powell and her group and right. Utah. I mean, just the style didn't work for this year. Um, no. I think the defensive style was outmatched by too many teams with offensive power. And so right. it was very, very hard to do, especially, you know, given, you know, press wasn't there for however long. And, you know, so it was, those are the, if have a style, yep. have conviction in that style yep. <laughs> and, you know, work that week in and week out. And I think you see in, in the league, at least this year, that that's what worked. Right. Um, and those teams were rewarded by, you know, sticking to their guns week right. in and week out and, you know, thinking about what they were going to do and how they were going to do it and then executing. Because I just don't think I don't think players 
even caliber of players of Alex Morgan, Sidney LaRue, Chiabagagu, Nairn, Kennedy, Weatherholt, Krieger, like you go down the right. line, right? Marta, like if you change it every three weeks, even they can't adjust that fast. No. <laughs> it's not no. like, no. like there's a development track even for pros, right? Like so yeah. they have to develop in the system. And you're talking about finite margins of one percent here and one percent right. there. It's gotta be a situation where they have a consistency. I mean, especially top level players, you know, that's why superstitions are such a thing in pro sports. Right. You know, it's like right. that it's all about consistency and routine. And I think that's what let Orlando down quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, Washington's form wasn't much better. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you think you see, you know, with three games left to go, Jim is no longer the head coach of Washington Spirit. Yep. So it's yeah. like that kind of, you know, that speaks for, yeah, it speaks for itself. So <laughs> right. it's, it's one of those situations. But yeah, I mean, now we are, we are here to the playoffs. What is your, what do you have? So give it to um, us. Give it to us. What what is your playoff predictions? Uh, I mean, who has the the wherewithal to get through to the final? How are I, they going to get it done? I don't know. Honestly, this is probably one of the harder playoff pictures because I think you see, you know, you can't look at scores from past games. Yeah. Because they just, it's this is such a different environment. And I think there's so many different factors too. So, like, if you look at the Portland and Seattle game, that game, like you said, it's going to be a sold-out game. It's going to be a rival game. It's going to be incredible. There's going to be a lot of emotions going into that game. Um, and I could easily see it going either way. Anyway. Like, it's just on the day. And I don't, I, I would be, let's just put it this way. I'd be shocked if it was a 3-1 type game this game like i i see it as a one zero or a two one something in that it's got to be close kind of game um so I, that one's kind of hard <laughs> i i mean and you know me more than most people out here I, I i would i would normally punt at every turn and like trying to make a decision here of course but i think <laughs> in yeah. this case i like i have one clear kind of delineation line yeah. If Rapino and Long play, yep. This game is Seattle's in the bag. Like I, agree. I, I don't like. I actually think it would. It, it's going to be a three-one kind of a thing. Right. If those two are in the game, because I think Long neutralizes Haran in a way yep. that nobody has been able to. Yep. And Rapino is Rapino. Uh, you know is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that's like, but she's creating so much havoc that Jody yes. Taylor then is better, and like it's it yes. just goes down the line. So. If Long can take care of Haran, and which she can, yes, and her two three years at Portland, you know, playing with Lindsay and Dilton, all yep. that, like heads, she's definitely the one who can do it. If those two things happen, I, I think this is in the bag for Seattle. If those two things don't happen, I, I think Portland has it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, and again, I, I still I think it's probably for me it probably is like a three one thing the other way. Like yeah. those two things. You know, I think it's the exact same game. I think right. maybe you get a goal here or there. You you create something off of a set play or something. Right. But I don't, I don't know who's going to stop Haran. And if you do focus on her, how you're going to then stop, you know, right. Christine Sinclair and the, the the supporting cast. So I, in those moments, I think it's it's going to be a blowout one way or the other. I think we're going to be sitting around at the 65th minute going, this game is over. 
depending on who plays. So yeah, I mean that's so bank that I would say is like it's it's lineup dependent because yep. of injuries, but you know I, I think there's a definite answer to this to this problem. The so what North, happens if one plays? So what if yeah, like so if one if you know plays. I, I think I think you're probably closer to a more a close game, right? Like yep. so I think. Yep. I think it favors if Wong isn't there. I think the game favors Portland. Yes, I agree. If, like I think they need Long, who is actually more time out than Rapino is. So Rapino yes. is a lot closer to being back than Ali yes. Long is. If Ali Long does not play, I think that's worse for them than if Megan Rapino doesn't play. Yes, and that probably is not the popular opinion. But <laughs> no, but I agree. I, it, there's a difference. People don't. I think people don't grasp the. The, how dangerous for some odd reason I don't pe- understand it, but how dangerous Haran is. Totally. I mean, Haran yeah. is just if you can't. And here the, the bottom line is, is Rapino's job isn't to shut Haran down. So yeah. if, if if Long doesn't play, who is going to shut her down? And no one has been found to really take care of yeah. Haran. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I I don't think you know there there's obviously there's a massive cast of of midfielders, you know, I mean, right. it's, it's, it's not something that is, you know, where there's the Seattle midfield is full of sloughs or anything, but right. I just think that she's such a different level. Haran yes. such a different level player. And yes. Ali Long is such a, like, she's become kind of one of the just like toughest sixes yep. in the country. Like, yes. you know, she's turned from a, a 10, uh, wide play like she's gone through all these iterations and has somehow become this tough six who can yeah. take care of the best attacking midfielders in the world. Yeah. And it just doesn't fit Fishlocks and Asuki's like no. MO. Like they're very good, but Fishlock is obviously an attacking player. And Asuki yeah. is quick and crafty and you know, yeah. great in the one v one. But Lindsay Haran also has like Four or five inches on her, <laughs> you know, like uh, her, like, yeah. sorry, like three three inches on her, and you know, thirty pounds of muscle. You know, right. like it's it's, right. a, it's a hard ask, I think. Right. And so those are you know those are the differing questions for me. So I think long is the more important piece. Yeah. And it, so if she's not there, I mean, I I think Seattle's chances greatly greatly diminish. Yeah. Um, in North Carolina, Chicago. Now they're oh god. You know I mean, <laughs> I, I don't. You know, North Carolina is obviously North Carolina, and they have been. You know, their no finish line has been real. Um, yeah, five zero last result. Yeah, I mean they've won everything put in front of them. Um, you know, and they've done it with flair and style and multiple yeah. goals. Um, but if Chicago was the first team to shut them down, though. Yes. If everybody's healthy for Chicago, I mean, there's another little caveat there, right? Put the asterisks on it because right. you, know, you had multiple players out this past match uh, versus Utah. So that's part of that loss is, you know, Casey Short's not playing and Juliet yep. isn't playing. Morgan right. Bryant's not playing. Like, you know, so there's there's a number of players that were, you know, out for, uh, for Chicago that yeah. if they're full strength, that's going to be one heck of a game, assuming yeah. we actually play it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so, hopefully the wind and rain doesn't carry everybody away. Yeah, like so hopefully it's not a situation where you're like, well, we're flipping a coin <laughs> in the in the right. league office or something. I don't I you know, who knows what the league will do, you know, like you right. just you just never know sometimes. I think people are 
a little bit incredulous as to like, you know, the, all the smoke games and obviously right. the two years ago, the infamous baseball field game. And, yep. You yep. know, like, so the league doesn't necessarily have all the time the best cred with everybody, but right. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, if if Chicago's healthy, like who do you like? Do you bet against North Carolina or do you bet against Sam Kerr? I mean, like that's like who's well, and that's who's gonna so do hard. those two things? Like who that's would do like that? It's the hardest competition. I think you've got – I think this game is, like, one of those things where – and I've, I've said it since the beginning. My fear with North Carolina – like, everybody knows I think North Carolina has been the number one the whole time. Yes, you know. But my fear with North Carolina is that they're going to – you know, because you have those teams that win out. They're the number one seed. Yeah. They blow everybody out. Unbelievable. And then they get to the playoff game, and it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, what happened? And yeah. then that's like my fear with North Carolina. Now saying that, I probably would have felt more like that if the game against Houston would have gone differently. Like yeah. if they would have been closer, if they if Houston would have beat them, I would have been like, oh God, here it goes. But I mean, they came out on fire and just blew them out. So, you know, I think if Chicago's full strength, North Carolina's full strength, I think it's a good it's a good game. Period. I think it's a close game. It's a good game. However, I don't think I could see Chicago blowing out North Carolina, but you could see. North I could Carolina see. Yeah, like I could see yeah. if the conditions aren't right, if yeah. Chicago's not healthy, you know. And it's almost as and as coaches, we always have everybody's experiences with a youth team, with a college team, with a pro team, whatever. You have one game, and it's like you can't get it right. Like no matter what you do. You do everything. You're telling the players to do things. The players are doing things. And it's literally just snowball is rolling down the hill and is getting bigger and bigger. And the goals just keep coming and coming. And I'm not saying that they're going to blow Chicago out. But I could see it go either very close either way or North Carolina scores multiple goals and it's over. But I think if Chicago comes full strength, I, I think it's a good game, and I think it's going to be hard to stop Sam Kerr. You have Ertz in the back who's going to keep it together yeah. and is a leader. Um, you know, I mean, now she's going against Dunn and McDonald. I mean, you're and, and Williams, and you're starting to look at this like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think you can. They can match up, and we've talked about it. The first team that was able to match up with North Carolina was Chicago. Yeah, they were the they first out those pieces exactly, like, and that was before trades and all that that stuff mm-hmm. that happened. So that's the question: is like they matched up well. Now saying that they matched up well, and then they played them again, and it didn't go so hot. So it's like, well, what is you know? So what what happens? I think it's going to be very interesting bringing the team. If Chicago's full strength, North Carolina's full strength, I think this game is a two-one, one-zero. Very close game, very very close game. I yeah, I, I think everybody full strength. That's yeah, it's it's not gonna be. It'll be a pretty hard sell to do that. I, I would say that the blowout that North Carolina had, Ertz played in the midfield. Yep. Uh, there was no Casey Short. Yep. Uh, Brian, <laughs> I think it was like her first game back or something like yep. that. Yep. Yep. Yuki Nagasato didn't start. Um, Di Bernardo was playing wide, yep. <laughs> so yep. I mean, like, I feel like you know what I mean. It's it's one of yep. those like, there's a different, yep, there's a different team there yep. now. So 
you're basically four four two four four two four four one one. However, you want to like Yuki's playing <laughs> yeah. underneath, and yep. you you know you have Di Bernardo and Brian, uh, you know, dealing with everything that's happening in the middle yep. of the park. You you have Casey Short, who is as fast as you yep. know a Lynn Williams, right? I mean, yep, Aaron Gilliland, who's probably one of the sneakiest, fastest players. You know, like out in the league, like you can see with some of her streaking runs that she made, you know, yep. against in the Sky Blue game, you're like, like she is one of the sneakiest, fastest players. So yep. is she, can she keep up with a done as well? Like, like that's, right. I think it's a matchup made for women's soccer, right, for, sure. <laughs> for the women's soccer history book. So, yeah. you know, it's a rematch of last year's semifinal, the whole thing, right? Like, so all these storylines keep coming and coming and coming. Right. I, I think I oof I'm I almost I almost had a huh? <laughs> no I, I can't I don't think I can I don't think I can I'm gonna go out I'm gonna go out here and say Chicago actually takes this game. Oh I'm gonna go out here and say Chicago takes this game. I, I think Okay. I, I think if especially what if Alyssa Nair if Nair has, has a day like and, she has been? Yeah, like that she's like like she's been doing. Yeah. I think this this one might find a bit more space. McCall Zabroni is obviously, you know, injured. And so Sam Mewis is a different player yep. in that spot. Um, right. And Sam Mewis has been great, but she's much more attacking-minded mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. much more likely to come out of pockets of space yes. um, to be aggressive. And I think you see that in the Houston game. She yeah. drives with the ball so much. Well, yep. if she loses it to Julie Ertz, Katie Naughton, Morgan right. Bryan, that Good ball luck. is going straight into Kerr's feet. So yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I think yeah. there's a difference between them playing, uh, you know, there's a difference between them playing Houston and them playing Chicago. Right. So no, I agree. I, I think this one, you know, and I, you know, certainly I could be wrong and we'll see, but I, I think this one goes Chicago's way. It's a, it'll be interesting. And I think the big thing people will have to think about too, is what happens in today. I mean, hopefully we find out today, but what happens, yeah, where, does this know, game get played? where does this game go? I mean, if they try to play it in North Carolina, now all of a sudden we've got to look at what are the conditions going to look like? Yeah. And that, you know, everyone was like, well, don't let it affect. It does. It affects everybody's game no matter what. And so it's like, how does that affect it? If they have to, if both teams have to travel to a different location, how does that affect it? You know, is it not home? How does, you know, so yeah. it's interesting to see kind of all the stuff at play and see how that's going to affect everything. Yeah. And don't be fooled out there. Like it's, you know, there's a, there's a game inside the game happening right now. Yeah. I'm sure. Right. right? Like, Absolutely. so somebody's going to win this, this initial matchup, whether yeah. that's right. Chicago, right. Or, you know, if this game maybe goes back to Chicago and it's good play, right. like, or if North Carolina holds strong or whatever happens and this game gets played on Tuesday in North Carolina, like that's right. a victory mentally for somebody. Yeah. Right. And so like this whole hurricane Florence thing, that narrative is going to get played out in a win for one team or the other. And right. I think that's the beginning. So we, uh, we shall see what, uh, what transpires. We'll, uh, but we're going to get, so what we're going to do, Best of the best here. So oh, Lord. we'll start we'll start at the we'll start at the front because I think oh. I have a feeling we are we're pretty lockstep. Uh best uh -oh. striker award here. Best striker award uh for this season. Um go. 
Sam Kerr. There we go. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I, mean, I think that there's a, there's a couple that are in there that I think. Yes. Certainly. Well, but... Lynn Williams. Yeah, Lynn Williams. You know, you've got Rapino, Dunn. Yeah. I mean, I would put Dunn in the midfield. You yeah, know, you could put her in, in there a midfield well. category, but I, I think you could definitely say Lynn Williams. I, I mean, I think yep. there's a case for um, even Daly. Yep. You know, yep. I, yep. I mean, like, so you could you could make a case for. But I think Kerr's number of, out but, outlying winner. Yeah. I mean, she scored 16 goals in four less games than she. I was going to say she was playing less games than everybody else. <laughs> so I think uh, you know, yeah, Sam Kerr, easy, easy, easy. Uh, yeah. Go from there. So midfielder, your hard. best midfielder. I now I have no idea where you're going with this. This one's hard for me because I think you you know for midfield you have to think defensively, offensively, the whole package. Yeah, do you go? Yeah. Do you go one way or another? I have a few, but <laughs> um, I would say Haran just because I think she's the hardest one right now to figure out. Um, yeah. But with that, I also had three backups. <laughs> and my you have, whole, you have a whole midfield four. Like it's it's just the best midfielder, not the whole I'm midfield ready. line. Haran is I would say Haran's probably my number okay. one, but I have Nagasato as my second one, Davinia, and then I have Wong as well. Oh wow. Yeah. No McCall's Zaroni? Mm-mm. I didn't put Zaroni in there today. Ooh, I know. Wow. Not that she didn't do a well. Rare, a rare non-North Carolina pick for. I know, I know. It's, so I mean, mine is is a bit of a toss. I think the attacking side, or excuse me, the defensive side of me says oh. it's no. Says it's actually Zabroni. Like, yeah, Zabroni. I, I, I mean, like the defensive, like that kind of creative midfielder, just yep. kind of pulling strings, being the engine of the team. I'm like, with you. That part of me says Zabroni. The part that's like an attacking midfielder scored how many different goals? Yeah, better goals. Uh, you know, like out of the midfield, yeah. says it's a ran for me. You know, like you right, scored 13 right. goals out of the midfield. Right. Uh, and I think that that's a pretty decent, undeniable scenario. So right. uh, I'm a little bit torn. I think if I had to give one or the other, I think for everything that the team did and how big of a role she had in what is arguably the best women's soccer like American women's soccer professional team to exist in history. I, I have to give it to Zaboni. Yeah, I'm with you. That that's a fair one. That's a fair one. Uh defender of the year. Oh Lord. <laughs> and this Sierra Sierra disclaimer Sierra's an outside back. Sierra's an outside I, back. So I, I like I'm having I like, a feeling <laughs> I, I, I can't decide. I like I'm so conflicted with like all the different ones because every again you have such different roles. Like so you have Outside backs that are that go forward and an attack and that are good defensively, um, and that have added a lot to the team. Uh, God, so I would say Ertz is probably honestly my top one just because I think leadership wise, the whole package, I think she brings. I think if you don't have her on the team, you miss it, you have a huge hole. I mean, it's just a huge hole, and you can't – and it's hard to fill. You can find a good defender, but she's more than a defender. She's a leader. She's a communicator. You know, and being a center back, like, that's what I played. I mean, that that's that's a huge part of your role. And so I think Ertz, for me, is just the overall everything package of a, of a defender. Um, 
And then I had obviously backups, but whatever. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, I mean, I will say this. Chicago is clearly not Chicago that we see now. No. Chicago is not a playoff team if Julie Ertz is still playing in the sixth role. Um, yeah. No. Like the whole fortune of the team changed yep. when she moved back a line. So, I mean, yeah, no no problems with that at all. Uh, I, I think I'm probably going to – I think Abby Ersig for me was the best yeah, defender. Yeah, that's a good one too. Uh, that there was. I, now, you could – you could make claim for, I mean, we've both picked center backs, um, which, you know, I, mean, I have a list of outside backs. backs. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, you have, you have, I mean, <laughs> but you also like you have Sauerbrunn as well. And that's, yep. little, but, that's the other one I had. You know, I think for me, Ursig, I mean, it's just a stalwart. You know, I, my, my secondary thing would probably be a combination of Barnes and Oyster. I mean, like they've had just such yeah. an amazing defensive year that you're like, I don't know which one to pick. The pair yeah. of them have basically played like 20 something games together. So yeah. <laughs> it's like, right. so, but I think at the end of the day, I, I give it to, to Abby Ersig. Um, I think she's just been the most dynamic defender. Um, you know, the, as much as like, as much flair as you can put into defending. Yeah. I, I think Abby but- Ersig. Yeah, does right. that the the best of anybody? You know, everybody, everybody kind of you know. Julie Ertz goes about her business. So I'm really good. She goes about her right. business. Like, but right. I just like that Abby Ersig does it with a with a, a bit, bit of, of a flash. Yeah, she um, does it with a with a bit of swag as well. So right. give right. Abby Ersig the nod for swag points. Swag points. Yeah, you yeah. hear that, Ersig? You got swag points from Clifton Bush. Swag points. <laughs> <laughs> the. Uh, and then, I mean, for me, goalkeeper of the year is easy. Uh-oh. I don't know. I don't know where Sierra's going with this, but I've, I've been saying it from. I don't. I'm pretty sure, episode one, like season one, episode one, minute one. Um, I've been. Tell saying, us who it is. Tell us I've, who it is. I listen there. Best yes, goalkeeper. that's what mine was. Yeah, I mean, like I don't. I, <laughs> I think if here's the thing, the question would be: Is if France played from day one, would you say the same thing? Whoa. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Everyone just wait for this. Answer. No, no, I mean, oh. here's what I'll say. <laughs> I don't have to make that decision because that's not what happened. <laughs> Alyssa Nair played in 22, nah, she was 22 of 24 games or whatever it was. That's um, well-deserved. She was well-deserved. Uh, yeah, she I think saved her like, team's butt multiple yeah, times. multiple times. So, you know. Yeah, clearly, you know, French is, you know, so there's always a lot of people have the argument of like, is it the goalkeeper on the best team? You know, so I, like, I do think Kaylin Rowland was very good um, this season, right. but I, I don't think she's the reason why they were so good defensively. No, no. Um, I think she's the benefactor of yes. a really good 10 in front of her. Um, yes. The, you know, Ashlyn Harris, I don't think performed at the level that. Oh, she could have. I I would argue that maybe Nicole Barnhart gets in this conversation yep. if they yep. haven't spent so much time on Abby Smith. Um, yep. I think that's. I mean, we were calling Abby Smith's name a lot early on when there were a lot yep. of those kind of goalkeeping woes. You know, like when people were like, you know, like people were just dropping balls in the middle of the box. Like, you know, a lot of that stuff was down to Abby Smith as well. And I think 
I, I yep. think Nicole Barnhart, had she played a whole season, we could have seen maybe a resurgence Perfect. of a Nicole Barnhart, like, you know, that we hadn't seen in a while yep. uh, since kind of the national team day. So I think all told games played the whole deal. I think Alyssa Nair is, is to me, clearly the, the top goalkeeper in the league this year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even missing the games, I still think you're probably right. I mean, I think France is probably still number two. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. Mean, having that number of games. Uh, but, you know, they're, uh, the no, goalkeeper Nair, situation Nair was pretty wrapped up, I think, somewhere after that first North Carolina-Chicago game. Oh, yeah. That might be the best, you know, professional goalkeeping performance that we've yeah. seen. Um, right. I mean, even Hope Solo didn't have to do that, you know, no, like no. Hope, she played, you know, as a Laura Harvey team, very good defensively. Like, right. Hope never had to just like, at least in my memory, have to just like stand on her head. Yeah, um, right. Way Nair had to in that game versus North Carolina. So the uh, the goalkeeping situation is, uh, as, as said, you know, and yeah. I, I think AD is right up there and the second uh she plays the whole season we'll be right back i mean she was a goalkeeper of the year last year you know right they completely deserved so yeah well i would say that the u.s national team is in pretty good hands pretty good hands if it's yeah if it's a listener and 80 french oh my gosh yeah one two i think i think we're we'll do okay right um so those of you who are worried about that particular position you know, after the departure of Pope Solo, I think you can rest easy. Yeah. So I agree. Well, that that is it for today. Our our last episode together, Sierra. Depressing. I know it's kind of sad. The last episode together. What um, are people gonna do with their lives? I, you know, I, I do not know. <laughs> I do not know, but. There are there are at least like seven people, two cats and a dog who listen every week, um, and so you know, we will give them more time to you know to do more uh, important things with their lives. I don't know, but I will say you know it's an absolute blast, Sierra. It's yeah, man, it's been blast. fun. I appreciate the appreciate you going on the journey with us here. It's been real. So that's uh but thank you folks, everyone who gotta gotta listen. Uh we appreciate you out there. Modern soccer coach, uh take a look, you know, all the interviews that happen uh, that Gary puts out uh, you know, every week with all kinds of coaches to improve. Um definitely take a look at that. But don't forget to, in all your modern soccer coach travels that there is a, a burgeoning women's league that is Woo-hoo! is amazing amazing and we are a testament to that i think every week there's just been something really really cool that's happened yeah absolutely and so we appreciate all of our guests all of our interviews like i said stay tuned for our interview today as well uh david is going to give you tons and tons of insights and thoughts into how it's done uh, in the landscape of women's soccer uh, at the highest level so uh can't get much better than uh one of the architects of the England national team resurgence. So take a listen to that for sure. Thank you all for listening and we will see you all really soon.
And as everybody knows, this is the NWSL Rewind interview portion, my favorite time of the week, getting to uh, have a chat with some of the minds that exist in the NWSL in and around the women's game, trying to promote week in and week out as we do. And this week is no exception. We have David Goff with us here today. He is the former England national team assistant coach, former assistant coach to Vladko Andonovsky at FC Kansas City, Arkansas University, as well as now the girls DOC at Florida Elite in North Florida. David, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, Clifton. I'm good. Thank you. So for those, I just gave like a little slight rundown there, but uh, I think it's always easier to hear from yourself. So for those of you out there who don't know, just going to have David, just tell us about yourself. Tell us, you know, where you're coming from. Uh, explain, you know, we've had plenty of uh, people, Scott Parkinson, all these, you know, so explain the accents, where you're from, how you got here, um, and, and just tell us a bit about yourself. Absolutely, yeah, sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a Valley boy, South Wales, um, from a small, very small town called Abertridu. It's about three and a half thousand people, and um, I started out just sort of volunteering at my local YMCA. Um, they paid for my first ever coaching badge. And I realized I was a pretty bang average player, if I'm honest, mate, very early on. Uh, I was I was once described as running with my handbrake on. So I thought coaching is probably a better, a better role for me than playing. But uh, yeah, that's what I started. Um, and just like everybody else, I, I kind of went from there, you know? Yeah, so after kind of, you know, the just starting in your, in, in a young career, I mean, it's funny because I, I actually, the first ever team I coached after I finished playing was a YMCA, like really? indoor, like five V five, like U nine co-ed situation. So it's, it's all from the humble beginnings. How did you get from the YMCA uh, to the England national team set? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, so I, I obviously started off coaching the under nines there and I was inspired by, you know, the guys there who'd coached me in my youth, you know, under 12s, under 14s, under 16s, these were these were guys who had real jobs and came and gave their time up on a, a midweek night. And without them, we wouldn't have been even able to play. So I, they were probably my biggest influence, those guys. And uh, I wanted to emulate them. I wanted to be like them. And I was very fortunate. I got working with the Welsh Football Trust, which is the, the, the governing body in Wales, very early on in my career, starting around 18, 19 years old. Um, and I kind of took it from there. I met some fantastic people at the trust. You know, they really took care of me and, and set me on the path. I worked for them for three or four years and I delivered coach education for them for over 10 years. And that was really the catalyst to, to moving on to professional clubs and obviously England national team from there. Yeah, those, and there's a number of like kind of coaches coming out of Wales and the coaching setup there, like even English coaches coming yeah. out of Wales and that sort of a thing. I mean, what is the, what's the thing that the Welsh system has that attracts English, you know, ex-players, English coaches, Irish coaches, that sort of thing to, to that setup? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's many years in the making um you know the last 10 15 years there's been some not just english but certainly high profile candidates from around the world choose the the welsh coach education system and really it comes down to the the work of the football association and the welsh football trust and the technical director Oshan roberts who is also the assistant manager with ryan um gigs in the national team now and 
the staff they have there and the courses they put on there are very much regarded as, you know, one of the best uh, in the world, not just in Europe. And the pro license also has amazing candidates come on it every year in Wales. It's a great environment to learn. Um, I think it's really word of mouth. Pros talk to each other. People in the game talk to each other and they, they kind of talk about the Welsh system being educational, informative, um, perhaps a bit more vocational, a bit more hands-on uh, than some around the world. Um, and obviously, you know, some major names, people like Patrick Vieira, people like David Ginola, people like Craig Bellamy, um, people like Marcel Desai have come through the system in recent years and that's uh, increased the profile. Yeah, I think there would be a, who wins in the uh, coaching setup, the Irish setup or the Welsh setup? Oh, I think I think we're all doing the same job, really. I mean, <laughs> we're all trying to increase it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's kind of looking over the border at Big Brother anymore and, and worrying about what the English are doing or what the Irish are doing, especially. But um, I think just in Wales, we're very proud of our coach education structure. It, it was a huge part in my development. I was very fortunate to be not just a candidate going through the courses, but also support staff on the A license uh, and, you know, course tutor on the B license and C license. And, you know, that kind of shapes you and that kind of um, those early experiences kind of make you the coach you are, I suppose. And I learned as much on those courses talking like we are now, Clifton, as I did mm -hmm. from the formal lectures and the, and the, you know, the pitch sessions. You know, you can't really replace those kinds of those kinds of experiences, I think. No, and that's a lot of what, what this is about, trying to expand uh, those conversations for people out there. So I mean, how so? How did you get from the trust to the states? Well, I mean, the short version is that I, um, I eventually got a role at Cardiff City Football Club, um, current MK Don's manager, uh, sorry, AFC Wimbledon manager, uh, Neil Ardley uh, was the academy director there, and he gave me my first chance as an assistant under 18s coach in uh, in Cardiff. And I really kind of took that role on. I started with the under 15s and kind of became full-time with the 18s after a few years. Loved that. You know, there's a lot of great men and women working in the, the pro youth setup in England and Wales. You know, that was a time when, you know, the EPPP plan was at its height and people were going through the audits. And, you know, that was a, that was a great time for youth development. We're seeing some of the merits of that now. But I was kind of in it when it was really in its sort of heyday and everyone was trying to come up with their philosophies and get their clubs together. And um, I worked with some fantastic people there at Cardiff. And and the, and the short version of the story is when Neil left uh, to go to Wimbledon, Dick Bate came in as academy manager and that was a game changer. Well, so Yeah, that's a whole other. Uh... That was a that was a huge that was a huge time in my career. And obviously you, you knew about Dick's. Uh, reputation and he knew about his history but you know I was sitting with him one day at dinner and discussing as you do and he was sort of telling a story about a player he'd worked with he would never drop any names in but you knew he was talking about Rooney or Mourinho or someone and you kind of hang it on his every word and he dropped it into me like you know have you ever thought about working in another country have you ever thought about learning Spanish have you ever thought about going to Madrid or have you ever thought about going to the States and the true answer was as a boy from South Wales no I'd never thought about anything like that um, but that was really the kind of conversation that set it all in motion. We have we've have been fortunate, like we had uh, Anthony DiCicco on, and he was able to talk about his father, Tony DiCicco, and kind of that influence. Uh, I mean, some of the uh, Dick Bate, just as an aside, is just my own personal. I mean, 
from afar, as a guy who grew up on the West Coast, like watching Dick Bate has always been just revolutionary. And so just a, a moment out to just remember how great of a man, coach, everything Dick Bate, you know, was and the influence that he had uh, on probably all the people listening right now. That's right. And I think everybody in some way is, has a story or a, a memory or an influence that they can link back to, to, to someone like Dick or to, or to Tony or, you know, those those kinds of master coach educators, if you like. And I mean, obviously it was, uh, you know, it was devastating news for the football community and personally for his family. And our thoughts are still with them right now. But I think, you know, recently I saw a lovely gesture from the FA. They'd renamed one of the pitches at St. George's after Dick Bate. And I think there'll be more of those things in the coming months and years. And certainly I would like to do my best to live, you know, to live a life that sort of portrays his legacy and, and kind of pass on what he taught to me as much as I can, because he was a, a huge influence, not just on the field, but also personally on me as well in the time that I got to spend with him. Uh, that's, it's, that's a fortune that uh, can't be spent, I would say, for sure. The, I mean, it's, and it strikes me that, because we talk a lot about like getting out of your comfort zone and, you know, so you talk about being from South Wales and just small, that's a really small town and you go to a massive country and that influence of somebody to push you out of that comfort zone yeah. can only make you that much better of a coach. And so it's interesting. Talk to us about like kind of, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just straight to over here and straight to roses and life was great. And you found, you know, um, your way and the skies opened up. I mean, what was the, the adversarial process like to get yourself set here in a whole other culture and environment? I think um, I think it's the same. I think it's probably the same experience as many of the listeners will will have been going through or going through at the moment. When you're when you don't have a huge um, successful professional playing background and you have to kind of carve your own way, you, you obviously walk a different kind of path. Um, you know, as I said, I was very fortunate. Some of the organisations I work for, the Welsh Football Trust, the FA, you know, coach education for UEFA. I, I came across a lot of good people who had lived that life and spent 10, 15, 20 years as a player. And you pick up everything you can, don't you? But you still have to be yourself and you still have to you still have to do your own thing. So for me, it was a case of accepting a challenge, you know, a, a challenge that came along at the local YMCA, a challenge that came along at, at Cardiff City, a challenge that came along moving to another country. And when we moved to the States, obviously, you know, for me and my family, there's there's two parts to that. There's there's the actual moving across the world, which I think you take lightly at times. You kind of feel it's a bit like just getting on a plane and, it, and there's a lot more to it than, than that. And then there's the soccer side. You know, I started off working in a, a youth soccer club in Arkansas and I learned, you know, I learned a lot there. I was tested in a lot of different ways there. Perhaps not soccer related tests on the field, but certainly um, personal related tests and, and, you know, professional and related tests. And I don't think I would have got those kinds of tests had I stayed in my environment in, in the UK. So I think all those experiences eventually come into the melting pot to make you you know the candidate you are and the coach you are you know yeah those are it's it's always a for me it's a fascinating obviously being from here and just having so much influence from foreign coaches and that sort of a thing it's always an interesting thing like how that transition transpires because i feel like no matter what in all of the coaching journeys whether you it's a playing background or a coaching background or you were in some other profession somewhere you have to have that adversity right like you have to have something that steals you 
to actually be able to make the positive changes and decisions that it takes to be a proper football coach absolutely. in, this, in absolutely. this modern age. Absolutely. And you have to have that you have to have that grit. You have to have that belief in yourself. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of great people out there who are, you know, you have to look at social media now. There's a lot of good coaches out there putting out good content and making good reputations and names for themselves on, on the work that they're doing. There's some fantastic video analysis out there, some fantastic coaching sessions you can see and find. And, and I always feel like you should learn and watch as much as you can. And I'm sure you're the same Clifton. You, you watch everything, take everything in, but you don't rely on that stuff. You still have to have something of your own, to say, okay, I like that, and that makes sense to me. But yeah, everybody is trying to carve out their own path. Everybody's trying to carve out their own their own way, and it takes a lot of belief, you know, because there's a lot of times when it really is just just you on your own and your belief. And you know, when you sat in Little Rock, Arkansas, coaching your first session, losing thirteen nil in your first game because you don't really know the the level that you're at and what you're doing, and you know, you kind of have to ask yourself those questions. Do I really believe in what I'm doing? Do I really have that belief? Or is that something that I've always, has it been a bit cosmetic? And when you're tested in those scenarios and you find a way to make it work and you learn a new terminology, you learn a new a new side of the game, um, that just gives you confidence. And then that's what you do. So eventually you've, so now you've, you've kind of, <laughs> worked through the American system, right? So it's so it's different than where you were coming from, I'm sure. And the, the player here is different than the player there. And kind of how we develop players here is certainly different than there. How did you get to that relationship with Vladko and Anofsky and find yourself into Kansas City? And, and forgive me if I skip something in, no. in this process, you know, certainly fill in the gaps for me here. Well, that's pretty much how it was. I mean, you know, soccer is a is a relatively small community, and um, even in a country this size, um, it's still an informal network, I suppose. Um, I actually made the contact uh, with Vladko through um, a fellow colleague of mine, at, you know, who I met. who was a guy called Matt Briggs, who was the academy manager at FC Kansas City. Uh, fantastic coach, you know, great ideas on the game. You know, very. You know, very similar age to me and, and very similar experiences had come over from the UK and he was doing a great job in their DA there. And I reached out to him on LinkedIn and we got chatting, uh, had a lunch. Um, and that's how I got introduced to Blackco. And um, again, you know, in three years of being in the States, I've been here since the since 2015. In three years, I've, I've worked in the college game. I've worked in the NWSL for a year. I've done youth soccer. And, I, I, you know, that's a relatively lot of things to do in a very short space of time. Um, but I think if you meet good people and you surround yourself with good people and you're prepared to go out of your own way and volunteer, you know, basically volunteer. That's how I started in college as a volunteer. That's how I started um, with Vladko, just giving my time. And, you know, if you're prepared to do that even now in this day and age where some younger coaches don't necessarily want to do that anymore, I think good things can can happen if you if you have the quality and you have the, the level of preparedness to step into those situations, you know. Yeah, and those are... I mean, and that's how that's actually how David and I even met was uh, happened to get on a plane to Florida, uh, you know, mutual contact through LinkedIn and the whole thing and have a breakfast after I believe after you guys had your team meeting yeah, it was for, for England for She Believes Cup. Yeah. So met with David. Uh, he was gracious enough to, you know, give me 15, 30 minutes of time and just kind of chat about things and uh, got to meet a few of the England players and talk yeah. to them. Actually ran into a few over at the Starbucks, uh, Jason to the hotel there. So it was 
kind of fortuitous happenstance. But those are sometimes, you know, it's a theme that we've talked about with a lot of coaches. Like sometimes you just got to get on a plane. You just got to go try and meet people, sit down, have a coffee, have a drink, have a conversation and see where that information can come from. You do. And, and you know, my, my advice to, to sort of aspiring coaches, younger coaches out there, even even the advice I follow now is you always try and surround yourself with the best people you can. And if that's a four hour you know, drive as it was for me from sort of northwest Arkansas through Missouri to Kansas, then, then that's what you do. And, and you just get it done and you find a way. Um, now, obviously, there's there's a financial constraint to that. You can't just go anywhere you want and do whatever you want. But that's why when an opportunity does present itself, it's so important that you go and invest that time because, you know, I'll, I'll never be able to quantify what I learned from Vlatko Andonofsky in one year. I mean, just rooming with him. We spent a week in Portland and, and Seattle. We went out there to play a doubleheader. And just being able to spend five, six, seven, eight hours a day in the presence of a manager like Vlatko is... Uh, you know, there's no price you can put on that. It's it's unbelievable. And to watch him work and prepare, and he has an encyclopedic knowledge of the of the women's game. And you know, I picked up so much from him. And you know, I still I'm still in contact with him now. And I very much I'm grateful for those kinds of people in the game that will give time and will give someone a chance. And you know, that's what everybody's really looking for, isn't it? Because everybody's a an unknown until they get their first chance. <laughs> yeah, it's the. Uh... It's the years to make an overnight success sort of a thing, yeah, right? Like, so yeah, exactly. Yeah. The years of prep it takes. Yeah, I mean, and that's it's we've had we've had that a lot. I mean, between you know, we've had Yael on here a couple of times, and like so the the times that we've talked about Vladko, yeah, it's his understanding of how to manage in this league seems to be at a level that is maybe goes a bit underrated. I mean, even though even though he has two championships yeah. with Kansas City, mm-hmm. it does feel like from the external kind of wind tunnel that happens in the league and all that you hear, you definitely hear about Laura Harvey and you definitely hear about Mark Parsons and you definitely hear about Paul Riley. Yeah. Not so much Vladko Andonovsky. What Do you have a sense of why that is? Well, I think first of all, those those are amazing coaches that you mentioned with with unbelievable pedigree and oh, hundred percent. They're all doing great things, aren't they? And I think with Vladko, it, for those that know him and have had the privilege of of being around him, he's you know he, he's not he's very understated. He gets on with his with his business. He knows the game inside out. He doesn't you know he doesn't necessarily put himself out there in a lot of things. You don't hear him commenting on a lot of things in the league. But I think he's probably the go-to guy. If everybody, if anybody ever wanted to know anything, so some other coaches have a bigger social media presence or have a, you know, a, a different kind of way of going about their business, and, and that works for them. And and Vladko, as you said, he's the most successful manager in the league in the history of the league. He's he's built teams, built philosophies. He's doing it again at Seattle this year, and it's it's phenomenal to see what he's doing at Seattle this year. Obviously, running the the courage as close as he can, and and obviously going into the playoffs. But I think. I think that's Vladko's temperament. I don't think he needs to be um, at the top of that tree in the public view. I think he just gets on with his work and his, his quality speaks for itself. Uh, I mean, the trophy case would say, and I mean, it, the things that he's doing in Seattle right now, obviously have, I mean, and the club was in great hands. It, it had no problems before, um, which only, I guess, codifies how well he's done to take them even to that next like it does feel like the way that they're playing is has altered in a way that's just slightly 
I guess the culture feels different there now than maybe yeah. it has over the last couple of years. I think you have to give someone like Blackhawk credit for going and taking on that kind of challenge after, you know, Laura being there for so long and building a team and building a brand and an identity and, and everyone knew what Seattle was. I mean, you know, for, for taking on a challenge like that and not being intimidated by the fact that, you know, do I want to follow Laura Harvey into Seattle? It could be a could be a tough a tough job, but, you know, he's rebuilt the team and he's made some changes and, and obviously he's, they're winning games again and, and they're at the top of the league again. And I think... You know, these are the kinds of things when you look at the women's game. Um, you know, I know that Laura and Black are very close. They talk a lot. I know they discussed, um, you know, his move across there and stuff. And and I think for me, you know, you've only got to look at the quality of all the managers in the league at the moment. You know, and and all the all the coaches in the league and the the work that they're doing and the 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 things they're trying to do to get their philosophies across and how the league is getting better as a result. Yeah, I mean, so with that kind of. Let's let's start in Seattle, given that that's kind of where we are right now. But give me your—I mean, you follow the league, you know. I, I imagine pretty uh, pretty closely I'm a fan. from from yeah. North Florida. Yeah. So, I mean, give us your impression of where. I mean, we're close going on to an international break, and we're very close to kind of solidifying the playoff picture here. Um, we're maybe one step away from that. What is your take on where we are in the league right now? Well, I think I think on the field, um, you know, the football being played now, the soccer being played, sorry, in at the top of the league is is, is amazing. Um, you've only got to look at what the Courage are doing. Um, they, you know, they're setting new standards and new trends every single year. They're raising, they're raising the bar. You know, everybody else is trying to kind of play catch up, but. But really what I see, Clifton, when I look at the league, there's not a huge difference. And this is quite it's quite interesting. Like if you look at the major leagues around the world, men's game, women's game, there's usually a huge trend difference between the teams at the top and the teams at the bottom. And if you look at the NWSL at the moment, that difference is is not as big. So if you look at the teams at the bottom, like Washington, you know, for example, they're they're relatively similar in terms of pass completion rates and and tackles and duels won and all these kinds of things that we measure, you know analysis on these days the difference is conversion rate if you look at the top teams they're scoring more goals from closer to the goal so the courage i think have scored something like 40 goals inside the penalty box this year whereas washington maybe have a third of that or a quarter of that and i think what it means is the top teams are having more of the ball closer to the goal and they're actually converting chances more often now that might sound simple but really there's a most coaches listening will know there's a lot more that goes into that than than anything else. And the teams at the top of the division, you know, the ones in the playoff slots will will be the ones that are converting more chances and and taking more chances um, than, than obviously the ones in the middle and the bottom. Yeah, we've, uh, Sierra, our co-host and I have, have kind of discussed in pretty detail the, a lot of, I think, times people, coaches in the game, whatever it might be, are looking for this possession, you know, the possession-based style, right? Like, so we're coming maybe out of an era of you have to keep the ball all the time and, you know, it's the 700 passes, whatever it might be. Mm. But in this league, it does seem that the speed of play dictates that those conversions happen much faster. So teams aren't on the ball for nearly as long. Mm. Uh, and your teams like a, like a Chicago, for example. I mean, obviously, North Carolina is a, is a – gleaming example of that but Chicago and how fast Yuki Nagasato can play into Sam Kerr to score and create goal scoring opportunities 
mm-hmm. tends to mean that you don't have to have the ball a lot <laughs> in order to be successful in this league. That, that's true, and I think I think the possession the possession rates are are you know similar across the board, and I you know it's those kind of lightning bolt moments, isn't it? That's that's kind of how I term it. You know, a bolt of lightning. Uh, we see a lot of that in North Florida right now, just in terms of not in terms of lightning. <laughs> but on the on the field, it's those moments where you see a player like like Rose Lavelle have an opportunity to to half turn and go forward with the outside of her foot and push it forward, and everyone in the ground kind of gets off their seat a little versus just a side foot pass fifteen yards backwards and. You know, if these these moments are what we're seeing in the league now, and I think a perfect example of that is, is as you said, someone like uh, someone like Sam Kerr. You know, you got Colaprico, you've got Di Bernardo, you have these fantastic creative influences around there who are, you know, playing these passes, feeding these balls, and and Sam is providing the has done for years now, providing the finishing touches. But I think that's what you see in the league, all around the league. You look at all the clubs; everybody has someone who's providing that lightning bolt moment. You know. Yeah, that's, I mean, the midfield core in the league seems to be what I would say the strongest. I mean, the second to that, maybe slightly down, would be the goalkeeping list. I mean, the list of goalkeepers in this league is is just phenomenal. But the midfield core certainly seems to be much more, like, like you said, the Colabrigos and Morgan Bryans of the world. Yeah, um, you know, now you've, you've got Andy Sullivan and the young players coming in. The difference makers does seem to be if you are North Carolina and you have a Lynn Williams, uh, McDonald, you know, like if you have those top players up front who can mm-hmm. finish the creativity from your midfield Zerbonis and that, you know, your Muses of the world, yeah. it does seem to tip the balance a little bit. Washington, a great midfield core, but maybe Hatch uh, and Pew, who's been injured for quite much of the season, mm-hmm. you know, they haven't had that that ability like those lightning moments like you said they haven't just kind of been able to touch on to convert the creativity that's come from the center of the park absolutely i think you can see that as well when you look at the games and i you know i try and watch as many games as i can but you kind of look at the teams and and you look at i mean kristen press is a great example right now in the league of someone who is who is and has always done that wherever she's been but you know you just got to get these players on the ball higher up and and kind of let them do their thing almost if you like but um, absolutely. I mean, every you could go through every single team and, and talk about that. You could, you know, you could do that for every single team in the league. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and that's, I mean, because that's kind of what's what the difference was in Houston, even right. I mean, you know, Daly and Ohio making those changes, and now all of a sudden you have somebody who's just. It doesn't matter where she's standing. She's, you know, and that's probably a player you're pretty familiar with. I would imagine. Yeah. Well, Ray, I worked with Rachel. She came into the squad towards the end of my time in. Um, the middle of the European qualifiers for the for Euro 2017, and she made a debut in uh, a game against Serbia, and she was phenomenal. I mean, she's the work ethic that she has, and she's a great character as well. She's fantastic around the team. I know she's she's back in the squad on a regular basis. And I heard Phil Neville talking, um, you know, talking her up recently, and I think that's well deserved because she's she's just a natural footballer. And, and I say natural; she's obviously worked extremely hard on her game, but. I mean, she had the ability to repeatedly sprint two, three, four times over 15, 20, 30 metres and, and not lose any intensity. And that that in the women's game is a huge trait. And I think what you see from all the best players, you look at around the world, at Perna Lahada doing so well and, and all these players doing amazing, Eugene Samir, all these players around the world, they all have that ability and that physicality. And I think, um, I think that's what makes the difference for someone like Rachel. And she definitely knows where the goal is as well. So we've... We've definitely talked about the attacking side. Uh, I mean, you have you were with Yael, and I'll 
just a bit of a segue here. You were with the IL in Kansas City, and th- talk about the defensive. Like, what do you see trend-wise defensively in the NWSL? Well, I think I think a segue into that is probably that defense is is changing all around the world. I mean, and you have to look at the top level EPL. You know the the Spanish league and the men's game and everything, which kind of sets the tone. The World Cup, obviously, that we've just had. One of the biggest stats that came out for me from the reports, the the technical reports, was was the distance or the height of the back lines that we're seeing. Now. We're seeing a lot more teams pressing higher up the field, and you know the back line of maybe 15, 20 yards higher than it was 20 years ago. Um, and I think some teams are caught in the middle of that. I think some teams are understand that they want to be a high pressing team. Some teams are are doing that well and other teams are kind of caught in between where we want to press high at the top but we don't want to get caught behind yeah and that's 10 i've seen that in the states in youth soccer as well you know it tends to be a a little bit of a ball over the top game at times and and people are kind of playing with double sweepers and and all this kind of stuff just to to protect the goal which makes sense on a tactical basis but then you create a huge gap in midfield which is i think what we said earlier why you see in the the top players coming to the fore in, in the middle of the park. So it goes round in circles. Uh, I'm certainly seeing in the league now that the defenders are still great. It's, you know, the Abby Ursigs of this world, this the Becky Salburns of this world. I was very, very fortunate to work with Becky for a year um, at FC Kansas City and 1v1 defending. I mean, you know, it's a lesson every time you watch someone like Becky play. But I think the units and the collective now are becoming stronger. And I think that's what you're seeing in the league is as the units and the defensive units get better, as the players start to work together more, as the coaching gets better, as it has done, I think you're going to see more and more of that and more and more shadows. Yeah, there's a... Yeah, there just seems to be a... The defences are staying closer staying together closer. now. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to maybe separating as much as we saw maybe five, eight, ten years ago, where centre-backs are really kind of splitting themselves 30 yeah. yards apart and, you know, the full-backs are, you know, 60 yards up the field with the exception of North Carolina, who uh, you know plays a very expansive fullback system, but you, you're seeing everybody maybe a little bit tighter in these games. There's been fewer games in in my recollection of the league over the past six years. Now, where you have massive, you know, four nothing, four three. Uh, Paul Riley, when he was at Portland, I remember was a, a bit famous for saying he was like, I you know, I'd rather lose a game uh, three four and play attacking than I would win a game one nil, you know, like, and so that, I, I think that that's, that's probably tightened itself up a bit you know, over the past couple of years. Well, I think, I think players are, you know, players are very well educated now as well. You know, you mentioned someone like Yale there or, you know, players of that ilk who have that pedigree that they're also, you know, they know the game, they're going for their coaching badges. They understand they, 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 they probably want more part of that conversation now with the modern pro than they did, 15 years ago, maybe. Um, it's probably a generalisation, but that perhaps has, has lent into it as well. So I, I think we are seeing that. And I think you only have to look back four or five years at the success of a team like Atletico Madrid and what Diego Simeone was doing there and the influences that that had on teams where, you know, we used to have a system where we know, everyone knows in the game that when you got it, you go big and wide. And when you don't, you loop, you stay small. But then all of a sudden they, they buck that trend and, now you have teams who even win it and stay small because they know they're better off counter-pressing and defending from there. And, you know, that's what that's what Liverpool are doing. That's what, you know, Dortmund are doing. That's what the top teams around the world are doing. And you're seeing that in the women's game now as well with the, some nations and, and some top club teams too. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the, from the coaching side of it is the exciting part, I think, 
as as a coach fan. I, I don't know how to quite coin yeah. that phrase. You know what I mean? But as, as as a fan who watches as a coach as well, I think it's it's exciting to see that this league teams in this league um, and the women's game globally are actually they're not just taking cues from the men's game. Sure. You know, it's it's not just a ten year behind. Okay, well so-and-so was doing this 10 years ago, so now the women's game is going to adapt. And now coaches are starting to think of what makes sense stylistically, systematically for their squads over the course of a three, four-year period, thinking about what are we going to need and who are we going to need to bring in. Uh, you know, the the gaining Mitch Purse in Portland for Mark Parsons and going to, you know, understanding what he was going to need from wingbacks and the personnel he was going to need and, and kind of gaining her in that uh, uh, redispersal draft from Boston, I think is a cue that teams are no longer just kind of looking at external forces. They're trying to stylistically put their stamp on the game here today. Yeah, absolutely correct. I think we're in a really interesting period right now in, in the league and, and in professional women's soccer in the U S at the moment, because after five years, you know, the, uh, the first five years of the league perhaps were, look, we've got this major star coming in, come and watch. And whether that player was on your team or the other team, you came and watched and support that US national team star. And I think that was the first phase of the league as we move into sort of year five, year six, year seven. I think you're dead right. I think we're now going to see club fan engagement get more important, get bigger. People are going to follow their clubs more. They're going to want stylistically to have a philosophy. And I think coaches like Mark, as you said, are now looking for pieces they can go out and get to put those things together as opposed to perhaps what happened in the first few years of the league when the league was obviously trying to gain some traction. So there's a really interesting change going on there that I see, I think. Um, and that's that's only going to be better for the league and for women's soccer in general. Um, and I think the coaches play a major part in that in terms of, you know, what the Portland Thorns philosophy is and what the, you know, Washington spirit philosophy is or what the sky blue philosophy is. And, and that's really what I think you're seeing in the, in the game at the moment. And those, I mean, and I would be remiss not to get your, just a, a few general thoughts on, I mean, Washington is going to go through a coaching change. We know for sure. Um, sky blue is going to, you know, something is going to have to kind of alter a bit there to usher them into or out of what has been this kind of year-long uh, funk of, of results. I, I mean, they've they've played well over the last month and a half, six weeks or so, but have not yet to get the result that they clearly desperately, you know, want for their club and their fans. Um, what is, where do you see the coaching leading, you know, in the next iteration um, with as openings come up and new coaches come in, uh, where, where do you see what does the new coach in the NWSL look like? Well, that's a great question. I think, I mean, I think we're at that stage now where that is a valid point. You know, I think, I think in in past years gone by, I think a lot of the same coaches have kind of got the same jobs, and and that happens in soccer a lot. Um, I think now you're starting to see some some really interesting appointments of people who have a real defined philosophy or a real defined way of going about things. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Denise at Sky Blue has a plan and I'm sure her and her staff are working hard trying to get that right. Um, you perhaps get a little bit more time in the women's game than you would in the men's game if, if you know, if results are not quite going that way. But that's probably something that's going to change as well as we as we move into the next few years. 
I think, again, it goes back to what we were saying at the start. You have to have that real belief in what you're doing and you have to have an ability to sell that to the players. Certainly the best managers I've ever worked with and, and been influenced by, they had an unbelievable ability to to, to sell their message and, and their messages made sense. And I think gone are the days now where, you know, a coach can come in and just say, right, we're doing this. I'm not going to tell you why. I'm not going to. I'm not going to make you invest. I'm not going to highlight your strength. We're just doing this because I'm saying it. And I don't think players want that anymore. So I think that's probably the biggest change that we're seeing. And when you see the, the level of engagement that, that the North Carolina players clearly have with, with Paul Riley and, and Seattle clearly have with Vladko and, and Utah clearly have with Laura, you're seeing the successful teams and the, and the, and the top teams having that kind of investment and that, that dialogue, obviously. You know? Yeah, that's... I think we very, very early on, I, I spoke with Matt Beard um, and, and to the importance of staff culture, not just player culture and, and coming up with how does your support staff, your assistant coaches, your trainer, your strength coaches, how do those people influence the results at the end of the day? And I yeah. think that was, that was a major key for him uh, was making sure that he not only had different types of people, but people who thought differently than he did and yeah. how it manifested itself in like the group and being able to relate to players, which I think you could probably see with his staff at West Ham now, is if you look at his staff there and go, oh, well, that it's, it's differing of people he trusts clearly, but they, there's definitely different backgrounds and different setups all, all that go throughout that. I think it's more so now, you know, competence is the key really, isn't it? And used to be jobs jobs for the boys or jobs for the jobs for the ladies or whatever you call it but i think now people are realizing when they put their high performance teams together they need experts they need people who are going to challenge them and like i said the best environments i've ever come across you know the head coaches don't pretend to be messiahs or, or infallible you know they they like to be challenged they actually encourage a challenge uh, from their staff they know it's coming from the right place and you know, ultimately, they might be the one to say, well, no, we're going to go with this. And that's that's their responsibility as a head coach. But um, I think gone are the days of, of people fearing opinions in soccer. I don't think there's many successful coaches out there now who try to guard and protect against all that. I think people have just become a little bit more um, open to that support. And that's probably a huge change in soccer in the last 20 years. I mean, 20 years ago, you read the autobiographies, you read the, you watch the stories, you get anything you can, and you see how some managers and coaches do it. And you know, they're fearful for losing their jobs all the time or they're fearful for what someone's opinion might be. I think now that collective coming together of, of good minds around the game has been a huge you know, factor in how the game's got better. Yeah, and that's the... I mean, we have tried to, you know, just talk about the game and engage in the game and engage in how coaches are thinking about things. And that's just... I think it's a shot show of, of just what you're talking about. It is like now you can become an expert, you don't necessarily have to, you know, have everybody's experience validates them. And that's, you know, the, the pro playing experience, all those things, but you have people now who are studying at a level that is very, very intentional. And so how does that then translate itself into the new coach? I mean, cause that's would be my thing is like, how much, how many, are we going to get new coaches in the NWSL? Are we going to get them, you know, to coin a phrase, you know, the modern coach into the NWSL um, in the future here. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd be I'd be very careful not to be disrespectful of the coaches that are in the league. Yeah, yeah, fantastic coach in the league. I know, I know what we're saying here is is probably in year five, year six is about time that you know we that it goes in a, in a direction of that. We're seeing some 
some brand new talent. We're seeing some brand new players. We're seeing seeing some clubs change, some club rivalries develop. You know, we we've always known what what the game Portland Seattle is, but now we're seeing some some other rivalries develop. Obviously on geographical grounds, but I think the league is going into an exciting new phase, and I think I think we're going to see some more of that. And I really do think that that's going to that's going to take the league on, and that's going to bring new fans in and new new people in and and that's what's ultimately going to make the league a success whereas some of the you know one of the reasons they'll make the league a success whereas some of the other predecessors failed well we appreciate you uh taking a bit of time out talking about the uh, the league i did want to mention because you've you've started up with your time at england and your time with kansas city you've yeah. started kind of helping young players uh, and current pro players develop mm. and continue their development. Tell, tell us just a little bit about that. Well, I, I mean, I've, what I started was um, an initiative called The Pro Player. So it's called www.thepro-player.com. Um And it generally was that. It was my way of kind of, of kind of feeding back and helping a little bit with, you know, when I came to this country, I met so many youth players who dreamed of being college players and still, you know, obviously I work with a lot now in my club in, in Florida, but, um, you know, it's a dream of millions of young girls around the world to, to play high-level soccer. And, you know, whereas they get a lot of extra technical support or a lot of them have extra physical training or, you know, if they're in an ECL club like ours, they're training a great amount of hours a week. Now they get excellent contact time. One of the areas that I felt was lacking a little bit was, was performance analysis and, and the link between that and, and coaching. So the ProPlayer.com was an initiative where we try and help any aspiring young player. They can send video in. They can get some real feedback back on videos and montages. And it's not just stuff like highlights of goals. It's it's really kind of high level sort of this. These are the runs you could make to be more influential, or this is where your positioning could be better as a centre back. You know and and then that kind of led on with some of the players that I'd worked with before and the contacts that I had to to continue, and as I do today, to work with some some pros, not just in, in the league, but also around the world. So, you know, it was something that I did in, in my spare time and I continue to do in my spare time. And it was it was my way of playing my sport part of supporting the women's game because, Clifton, I'm relatively new. I'm one of the converts in 2014. I, I kind of really got involved in the women's game for the first time. So... I think everybody who's in it, everybody who's ever been in it, knows, you know, the, the the ethos of what it is to be in women's football and how you have a responsibility to push it on, and the great work that's gone before. And I kind of felt compelled to to try and play my part in that and help help push the standard on and, and help as many people as I could. Well, for any young players out there who are looking to improve their their game, the analysis portion is just is so massive. I mean, and I obviously that I might be a little biased, having done some <laughs> some analysis work my own self in, in kind of being in that side of of the game. But I think it is it is probably we're starting to see like GPS drop its way down into the youth game and kind of your your physical performance. Uh, be tracked and you know really come into the new century i think the next that is probably really the next thing is can you visually really see and make better decisions in the game week in and week out are you tracking your training and you know are you making the incremental improvements that one day might uh, see you have david as your coach in some you know far off reaching international place somewhere so Thank you, David. We appreciate it so much. It's uh, It's been a, a great chat and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see you very soon.
Thanks for having me on. Cheers. This has been the NWSL Rewind. Have an opinion on the games? Let us hear it on Twitter using hashtag NWSL Rewind. And check us out at ModernSoccerCoach.com.